Hello and welcome to Free Speech Nation, the podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. I'm delighted today to welcome back Peter Bogosian. Peter is a writer and philosopher, the co-author with James Lindsay of a book called How to Have Impossible Conversations. Those of you who listen to the podcast regularly will know that Peter was on the show just a few weeks ago and we were having a debate about free speech. And the point of that podcast was that because it's very difficult to get free speech sceptics to appear on these kind of shows, but we want to hear their arguments. So in that debate, I played devil's advocate and I argued against free speech and Peter argued for free speech. And it was very interesting. It was a lot of fun. You can check that out on the Free Speech Nation podcast back catalogue. So today what we did is we reversed the roles and we thought it'd be interesting for Peter to argue against free speech and for me to defend free speech. It was a really interesting exercise. Uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. One of the uh, points that I should raise is because I I had already advanced so many of the arguments against free speech in the last episode, uh, Peter was determined not to repeat any arguments I'd made. Uh, So I don't envy him this task because it left him with with, with quite a limited number of options in the argumentative front. Um, But nonetheless, he did a very good job. And you'll notice about halfway through the podcast... We, we felt that we'd exhausted it, we dispensed with that debate and we just started talking about the various issues uh, that the debate had raised and it was one of the most enjoyable and interesting conversations I've had for a long time so I hope you enjoy it as well. This is Free Speech Nation, the podcast with me, Andrew Doyle and my returning guest, Peter Bogosian. I'd like to start by asking you what you mean by free speech. When we talk about freedom of expression, we talk about the right to be able to say whatever you like Uh, without hindrance from the state, uh, without being silenced, without being prosecuted, without being harassed or physically attacked. So just that fundamental liberty, uh, which enables us to uh, converse, to innovate, um, to to make progress. There's been no progress throughout human history without speech. Uh, It's a collaborative process. It means that we're able to thrash out ideas, make sense of the world, talk to each other, refine our points of view. Uh, all of this is what I would say comes under the uh, the umbrella of free speech. Freedom of expression, if we want to get technical, I suppose, was all, w- would also incorporate uh, uh, forms of expression that do not involve speech, such as uh, the visual arts, that kind of thing. Um, but oh. I think for the purpose of our conversation, it's OK for us to use these terms synonymously. OK, so when you say whenever you want, I mean, we already do limit speech like libel laws or slander or yelling fire in a crowd or building. I mean, although I don't know if that's a a law on the island, but we already do limit freedom of speech. It depends what you mean by uh, limitations on freedom of speech. So some of the things that you've mentioned there, you mentioned libel and you've talked about, uh, well, let's start, let's start with your first point, which is about the, um, what did you say? You can't shout fire in a, in a, in a theater, um, which is a common kind of, um, it's almost become a cliche uh, when people want to defend censorship. And they're talking there about a case from back in uh, 1917. It was uh, Oliver, Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, who made that statement and what he was doing there, the justice of the of the court. And he was actually uh, drawing an analogy. And what the reason he was doing that, this was in a prosecution of a man called Schenk, I think, um, uh, who had been tried for espionage. And the judge was making an analogy with fi- uh, shouting uh, fire. But he specifically said shouting fire in a crowded theatre, the idea of panic mongering, the idea of causing uh, harm to other people. Um, when we use it now, I mean, it's so nebulous that people say you can't say fire in a theatre as though to say, well, there are certain forms of speech that we should prohibit. Actually, if you dig down into the analogy, it kind of breaks apart. When you go to a theatre, when you go and watch a public performance, you are entering into a contract to behave in a certain way within that production. If you do shout fire uh, in a crowded theatre and there is no fire you, and you cause a stampede and you cause injury, 
you, the proprietors would be well within the right to have you removed. That's not an infraction. Uh, 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 that's not uh, an infringement on your freedom of speech. Because by buying the ticket, you've implicitly entered into that contract. But also what Holmes was saying was slightly different. He was saying falsely shouting fire. That word falsely keeps getting dropped whenever people use this phrase. Falsely shouting fire. Uh, but of course, if there was a fire in a crowded theatre, you would have a moral obligation to, to shout fire. So I, I just think the whole thing is a bit of a, mis a misnomer. I don't think that, that analogy is even about, is even about free speech, uh, really. You could compare libel to you know, libel as a form of defamation. So you're, you're destroying someone's character or reputation, damaging their livelihood. And they are, uh, by making f plainly false statements against them. It's comparable to blackmail, say, or espionage or perjury. All of these are ways in which you can use speech as the mechanism to commit a crime or to do something wrong. But the crime is not the speech in of itself, it is the act. So when I say, I think it's fine for blackmail to be criminalized, that's not me trying to take away someone else's free freedom of speech or f freedom to blackmail someone else. What I'm saying is that the the crime of blackmail that's illegal. The mechanism that the crime was uh, the mechanism by which the crime was committed that's speech. But we don't shut down speech simply because it can be misused. So I think again we just need to uh, be very careful when we separate these issues here and understand that when we're talking about freedom of speech and when we defend absolute freedom of speech, we're not defending people's right to use speech as a means to commit criminal activity. That's not what we're doing there. We're saying that they should be free to express themselves however they see fit, but they shouldn't. That doesn't give them a free pass to break the law. Is that sort of clear what I'm saying? It's clear, but nothing you've said is even remotely persuasive. And I'll tell you why. Because... <laughs> because we do in every one of those instances, what you said was factually incorrect. We do limit people's freedom of speech. And we, we do have a in the United States, we have a constitution and those con and that constitution protects fundamental liberties of people. Yeah. That's why we have something called states rights. So the states can impose, for example, people can make their own laws in their own communities, but the federal law, the highest law is the constitution. Hmm. And so Go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm struggling with this idea that that it's it's unpersuasive because I haven't at all suggested that anyone's speech should be shut down. And I I, I tried to explain that I don't think uh, blackmail being illegal is not an infringement on someone's freedom of speech. And I don't see how it could be, uh, because what you what, well, you haven't you haven't criminalized speech in that case. You will take the example that you gave of the proprietor. Yeah. So you're basically saying that the contract in which one that's why I mentioned the Constitution, the yeah. contract in which one enters should trump one's fundamental right of freedom of speech. No, you're voluntarily doing so. It would be like, it would be equivalent to me taking a job on the understanding that my job involves uh, certain speech acts. So the most obvious example, and given that I've done it myself, is a teacher. Now I can take the job of a teacher and through my speech, I will be delivering various lessons and the curriculum. Uh, and I will have an obligation, according to my contract, to deliver certain aspects of the curriculum. If I spent my entire time as a teacher, uh, talking about completely different things that were unrelated to the subject so that the students fail their course, the school would be well within its right to fire me. And they're not firing me because uh, them firing me is not an attack on my freedom of speech. I've exercised my free speech, but I've also okay. broken a contract which was separate to that. And this so is the similar thing with the theatre. You're, you're saying that the, the contractual ob obligations in which we routinely traffic... Voluntarily those, so, yeah. Those trump... Our, um, our freedom of speech. Not at all, because if 
I want, so let's say, for instance, all I want to do, and this is a silly idea, but say all I want to do as a teacher is talk to the kids about origami, the Japanese art of paper folding. And, and that's all I want to talk about. I've been hired as a biology teacher, but I'm not going to talk about uh, the pancreas or peristalsis or, or anything like that. I'm going to talk about the Japanese art of paper folding all the time, all the way through my lessons. Okay. Now, I have failed in my role as a teacher and I failed and I've used my speech uh, in, in the way that I wanted to, but I failed and broken my contract and I would be free to be fired. But it's not, an, it's not against my freedom of speech because I could have always said, I'm not going to take the contract. I'm not going to take the job. I'm not going to sign that bit of paper. I'm going to go out on the street and rant to people about origami. Uh, so I haven't surrendered anything here. Do you see that's, that's the difference? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bracket this and come back to it. And I want to talk, if I may, about non-contractual obligations. And okay. Freedom. Yeah. So um, you seem to be, and if I've gotten this wrong, I'm sure you'll let me know, but you seem to be privileging your desire to speak over somebody's feelings, not to be uh, offended or not to have their feelings hurt. How do you make that moral calculation? I don't think I am uh, prioritizing my rights over somebody else. When I say I defend freedom of speech, I'm defending everyone's rights, including those people who might be offended by what I have to say, or including those people who might say things that could offend me. Um, so it isn't the case that I, we weigh it up in this way, that my right to say whatever I want trumps someone else's right not to be offended. For one thing, every human interaction that involves uh, a linguistic exchange carries with it the potential to cause offence. There's no such thing as speech that doesn't have the potential to cause offence because there are all sorts of connotations and associations that people might have. Uh, uh, there, there's literally nothing I could say that someone in the world wouldn't find upsetting for some reason. So either we take this to its logical conclusion and say, we just go around as mutes. We don't have any speech because the risk of offence is too great. Or we accept that to be a, part, a functioning part of society, uh, we, are, we risk being offended. And that's just a reality of being a human being. So I don't believe that what I am doing is encroaching on someone else's rights and saying it doesn't matter if someone else is, is offensive. I mean, this is, uh, is offended. This is why I do believe in the social contract and the idea of, of civility. Okay, uh, I, don't, okay. I don't go out of my way to right. offend people. Okay. Um, All right. But well, if I do on, okay. cause offense- There's a lot there. There's a lot there. I'd like to- There is a lot that. there. So, so yes, it is true that if you had a cookie recipe and you said there should be an extra egg, some chef somewhere may be offended or a homemaker or what have you. But I'm not talking about fringe cases of maniacs uh, being offended. There are certain things you can say that neither one of us would dare to say on this podcast sure. that are deeply offensive to some people. So why is it that that you privilege your right to say those things over the deep wounding that other people have would feel, particularly in light of historical trauma? But when you defend certain words, a pejorative words. Yeah, but when you defend freedom of speech, you're not making the case that we should all therefore go out of our way to offend other people. Uh, you, you can. It, it is not inconsistent to say that I support freedom of speech and I also support civility. Those two things are not inconsistent at all. Um, what I'm saying is, if somebody wants to break break the social contract, which we all have, I mean, we all know this. We, we you'd be a fool to deny that. You know, if we go into our workplace, into schools 
in the public forum. We all implicitly enter into a social contract whereby there are certain ways in which we don't address each other. We don't use casual slurs, racial slurs, homophobic slurs, whatever. And we do that so that we can get on and, and we can have a cohesive society. Um, this isn't a, th a threat to our free speech. This only becomes a threat to our free speech when the state intervenes and actually criminalizes those who voluntarily choose to break the social contract. Okay, but whilst but, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that people shouldn't be free to break that social contract. I'm saying that we should, as a society, as a society, not encourage that and also disapprove of that. Um, but also, I personally, I'm not going. I I believe in civility, so I'm not going to do that. But you're defending the rights of other people to do that. Yes. If they if they see fit and they will have to face the consequences of that. And the consequences often are. I mean, if you if I went out uh, on the street or to a library and I started shouting racial slurs and that kind of thing, people will make a judgment about me. People will treat me like a pariah. People will criticize me back. People might ridicule me. Uh, so you're all sorts of they will use their own free speech. Uh, to challenge mine. And I support that. And I think that is that is the right approach, not to criminalize uh, the person for for behaving this in this abhorrent way, um, um, I'd rather challenge I'm, them. I'm sorry to Kathy Newman you, but what you're really saying is <laughs> that you're, you're in favor of cancel culture. That's not what cancel culture means. Cancel culture, oh. does, not, cancel culture does not mean uh, challenging someone for saying something offensive or stupid or wrong. Cancel culture is a, is a, a, a vengeful system by which uh, rather than uh, criticize someone, you denounce them and you do it en masse. And you often do that through the internet and through social media. And you will also harass them, threaten them, contact their employer, attempt to deprive them of a livelihood. And often all of this will be done on the basis of a very slight, uh, innocuous, relatively innocuous, uh, uh, what you might call misdemeanor or, 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 or mis misstep, or you've misspoken. It's a massive gratuitous overreaction. That's what cancel culture is. And it's also um, a failure of free speech because what I would support, like, so if someone said something online, some celebrity says something that I find absolutely appalling, I would support whoever they want to go and criticize that person. C criticize as much as you like. Uh, it's when you say, no, actually that person has to be destroyed. So their reputation has to be utterly destroyed. There's no possibility of redemption or forgiveness. Uh, their career has to die. They must never have a second chance. That's what we mean by cancel culture. Okay. So, so we've got to make a distinction there because they're not the same thing. Okay, so this is the, this this conversation. We've had two separate arguments. I'm going to bracket that one again, and I'm going to clearly I'm winning this debate. And <laughs> well, you would say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> and then, and then it's I'm all about winning with you, people. For me, it's about reaching the truth. For you, it's about the victory. Yes, that's that's correct. I can see why people don't argue this side more at all. <laughs> um, okay, <clears throat> so right, so let, let's say that we had a. Uh, um, a group of individuals who have sworn to do harm to others. You know, Hannah Arendt talks about uh, how um, people base their decisions a lot on uh, opinions and not facts and how yeah. opinions, um, um, not objective truths motivate people. So let's say that we, we have a, a group of people who are on the cusp of rising to power and they're going to clearly we can take them at their world. They're going to do people harm. Shouldn't they be silenced? Shouldn't we limit their freedom of speech? Firstly, I don't know how you would even achieve that. What you're talking about is a tyrant. And if a tyrant is in a position of power, you, you can't silence them. I mean, that's part of it. That's, that's, that's well, what if it's, what if it's a, if it's some kind of a sick hate group 
Like all of a sudden the KKK gains uh, emergence uh, or po- newfound popularity or what have you. Yeah. I, I mean, I would suggest that if, if that ever did happen, it will be because we have limited free speech. Because, it, because the reason why they declined and the reason why they, they are barely existent anymore is precisely because people challenged them, challenged their ideas. We heard the other side. We, we, we had the arguments. All of that became resolved. This is why... I, I don't know any racist people. I don't know people who say racist things. And th- that wouldn't have been the case 50, 60 years ago. You know, that, 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 that we've, we've made this social progress precisely because we've been able to talk about these ideas. And when you do uh, expose ideas to debate and discussion and rationality, what you realise is those, those ideas that are irrational, that cannot be sustained through reason, such as racial prejudice, they will not survive. They cannot survive with scrutiny. And that's the great thing about free speech. It means that the good ideas last and the bad ideas die. Um, this isn't going too well for me. <laughs> no, but... <laughs> um, all right, let me let me let me let me switch to a fourth. Let me switch to a fourth category. Okay. <clears throat> so, what what if it could be demonstrated to your satisfaction um, that limiting speech would be a net plus? It, shouldn't we then limit free speech? That's an interesting question. So whether or not, uh, if there was some way to quantify the effects and, to, and, and it could be proven that actually by limiting free speech in certain circumstances would produce a better society overall. I mean, Correct. as you know, it's a very theoretical thing to suggest because that couldn't be done. Yeah, but let's just accept by fiat that that's possible. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, first, I don't think it would. I mean, this is the reason why I don't agree with the premises. I just don't think that could be the case, that you would produce a better society uh, without free speech. Um, and if you and maybe that's the reason why I defend it. Maybe, you know, if maybe that's why I think uh, that your side of this argument is indefensible. Um, because why? Be- because it's not because necessarily you won't produce better societies. Yeah. Well, okay. What do you mean by what do you mean by better? It would be, and well, by better, I mean, I suppose, a society in which uh, uh, there's less antagonism. People are able to discuss ideas without threatening or attacking each other. There's less violence. I suppose this is what we mean, a more cohesive society. um, I don't think you could achieve that uh, through the limiting of speech. But say that you could, I would still say, even if you could work out that there are some net benefits to, to banning certain forms of speech, you would have to then look at what have you lost. I would say that the sacrifice there is too great. And it's not just because what you would also be doing within that is stifling any possibility of future innovation. You would really be stifling artistic endeavors as well. Uh, and those are the things that are, are at the heart of society. And I don't I, I couldn't imagine living in a world without uh, uh, artistic expression. And if you if you have stifled that for some good cause, I think it's too big a price to pay. But maybe that's too subjective. Let's take every everything you just said, and I'm going to offer, I'm going to suggest to you, we'll take this conversation to a new level. Yeah. I'm going to suggest to you that every single thing you said was a consequence of a belief system, which is, which is itself buying into the system that you support. Let me give you an example. Yes. My very dear friend, Faisal Amutar, once said to me, I was telling him that the best argument for secularism, even among jihadis, uh, radicals is basically that they're free to practice their own religion. Everybody can coexist and practice their own religion. And he said, even thinking that means you buy into secularism. These people don't want anybody to practice 
their own religion. They want them to practice their religion. Yeah. And so they're fundamentally against secularism. So inherent in the notion of secularism is a suite of ideas. And I would suggest to you that inherent in the position that you have just offered is a suite of ideas that attempt to bootstrap themselves, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Well, you're suggesting that I'm holding an ideological position, in other words. Yes, that's exactly what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that the the universe is a morally relativistic one, and you've just latched on to what. And if you really think about this, if you really think about this, if the universe really is a morally relativistic, um, and, and there are no kind of intrinsic laws to the fabric of moral laws to the fabric of reality, yeah. then you have just um, explicated a position that is itself arbitrary and then using that arbitrary position to justify your ideas of a manifestation of that position no, when there is no objective truth. But, but it's not, it's the opposite of that. It isn't arbitrary at all because what I'm actually advocating is for anyone to express themselves as they see fit, not just those who fall in line with my particular worldview. So, so it isn't an ideology to say that everyone should be free to express their ideology. That doesn't make sense. Okay. So, so you're saying that in order to make the argument that people shouldn't be able to express their own freedom of speech, you would have to know your position in the system. But if nobody knows their position in the system, it's always a good thing for everybody to be able to argue for that position. What I am saying is, is if if that if we live in a society in which anyone can advocate for whatever position they want, you're not prioritizing one worldview over another. You're doing the opposite. What you're saying is, no, you're prioritizing the view that people should be allowed to voice their opinion. But, but that, but that, okay. But every single, even the most tyrannous ideologue in the world would share that view. You won't find someone who doesn't believe that they should have the right to express their own point of view. The only people who call for censorship are ones who want to silence others, not who wants to, not who want to silence themselves. So yeah, that's because they have, not, that's, that's, and I, it's not better views. No, but it's not an ideological position because it's one that absolutely everyone shares. Everyone shares the belief that they should be able to say what they want, right? So um, it only becomes ideological when you start saying, but you don't get to speak. So I get to say what I want, but you don't get to speak. And that's why I, I sort of reject the premise that this is under, underpinned uh, by some kind of ideological bias. I, I just think, I think it's the opposite of that because it is one that is shared by all humanity. Ultimately, all, anyone who's, who's even on the pure level of self-interest, we all want to have freedoms for ourselves. The ones that want to deprive freedoms for other people are the tyrannical, are the authoritarian. And those are the ones that I'm attempting to object to. All right, so piggybacking off of that, Individuals being allowed unfettered discourse and conversation is a form of self-harm because it would there are certainly circumstances in which they would be persuaded by rhetoric and not truth. Not that they would not be persuaded by the better argument, but they would be persuaded by the better orator. And so it's not that in aggregate this has a negative effect on society. It's that allowing uh, people to think freely is a form of self-harm. Wait, do you, but it only becomes self-harm if that is the view of someone talking about themselves. Can you ever envisage a situation where, where someone would say, I fear that I might be swayed by the more powerful orator in this situation, and therefore I might be, uh, I might be manipulated into um, a, 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 a negative worldview, something that is bad for me. And therefore, as a means to address that, I want, I want uh, people to decide on my behalf, what I should and shouldn't hear. I don't know of anyone who's making that case. That's the only way it would no, be. Said. No, no, I'm thinking something like, um, let's say that somebody is a good, decent person. 
but mm. completely unreflective. You know, the, the, is the examined life worth not living? I'm going to make an uh, argument the examined life is very much not worth living, uh, the unexamined life. And then maybe they start challenging and questioning. And then maybe they realize that there really is no reason other than social convention that they should subscribe to the mores in which they live. And then maybe they go and they start doing all these things that are, you know, they start exhibiting antisocial behavior once they start reflecting on this. And so even allowing for the possibility that people can start to question, I mean, look at the society we have now, people tearing down statues, people ripping Yeah, go ahead. Well, I don't dispute whatsoever that people uh, are apt to be persuaded into bad ideas. I don't, I don't, you know, we see that all the time. Of course, that's the case. The very same speech rights that those people had who, who, who have caused that situation, they're the rights that we have to remedy it. They're the same rights that will, that will enable us to dissuade people to de-radicalize people. It's a failure of freedom of speech, actually. If someone is radicalized into a, into a particular mode of behavior that is antisocial, the only way out of them, the only way out of that is through speech, is through more speech, not less speech. It's not through curtailing what might have been. It's, it's actually opening up the discussion even further. I'll disagree. Um, one of the um, um, programs to de-radicalize jihadis, did a talk on this a few years ago, is... It's not that you show them that the worldview, that the fundamental assumptions underpinning their worldview is false, yeah. is that, that you lead them to more benign interpretations of the Quran. And so I'm thinking that even in those cases, because you said, uh, you said de-radicalize. Um, yeah. and, and I'm wondering if, if you just opened the floodgates and allowed anybody to say anything and you started talking to people and really truly questioning about whether or not there's sufficient evidence to warrant that, that, that their confidence in their beliefs was justified. My concern would be that, that those people who are particularly susceptible to various ideologies would then go off the deep end even more and commit more harm. And so in, in some countries, some totalitarian countries, um, there are uh, um, approved narratives well, I think so, but what you're saying here is that you're, you're p- picking up on certain elements of society, people who might want to proselytize, uh, right. people who might be susceptible to those kinds of pernicious influences. And you're saying that because of those singular instances, what we should do is we should limit speech for everyone. And I don't think that really makes sense. I don't think uh, taking um, those examples, that, because, because I'll tell you why. Because yeah, if you do that then limit for alcohol speech, and drugs... Well, look, if you do limit speech on the basis of the, the poor behavior of a minority, what you will actually end up doing is exacerbating the very problem you want to fix. You'll end up with more people like that behaving in an antisocial way, not less. So I don't think that's the solution. The problem there isn't free speech. The problem is uh, the ideas uh, that these people have espoused. Those are the things that you ought to challenge, and you can challenge that through speech. I mean, I give the example of someone you know is uh, Daryl Davis, who who uh, has de-radicalized members of the KKK. I don't know how he does it. I couldn't do it myself. I wouldn't have the patience or the skill to sit down and talk to a member of the KKK and try and, you know, coax them out of their unreasonable position. I don't know how he does it, but he's got, I think you mentioned in your book on this, he's got um, hoods. Yeah, yeah hoods to prove it he, he's got them uh, it's an incredible feat that he's achieved that can only that can only i mean it just goes to show that nobody is beyond redemption and that that through the free exchange of ideas 
anyone can be saved from that dark route. I mean, that's it's an incredible story. But if you were to say, let's just limit free speech for absolutely everyone, because sometimes it goes wrong. Uh, well, I think it's going to go wrong a whole lot more if you do that. And I just don't I'm not persuaded that that's the best way to run a society. I'm going to piggyback off of that in in on your island. Is Holocaust denial illegal? Um, well, we have hate speech laws and we have communications laws. Now, there was um, there have been cases of people who have gone to prison for Holocaust denial. Um, but it, I, as far as my understanding is, and I could be wrong about this, I would have to check. As far as my understanding is, it's not that there is a blanket law against Holocaust denial, but it is the malicious communication of malicious, malicious messaging online. So that the, right. the, the person I'm thinking of, I think, was prosecuted under the Communications Act 2003. Uh, and so it is a kind of de facto law against Holocaust denial, but it's not quite the same thing. It's not like in Austria, uh, where, where you, would, you would, for denying the Holocaust, you would simply serve a prison sentence. We don't have that. I'm willing so, to be told uh, that I'm wrong if I am wrong about that. But that yeah, is my no, no, I'm I'm just I'm just thinking about when I said to you, if I if it could be shown to your satisfaction, if it were a net benefit. I'm yeah, yeah. About, a specific example would help, actually, a, a specific instance of where you think that could work. Yeah, it's hard to tease out independent, covariant, you know, co excuse me, covariant uh, things like culture and language and such. But yeah, thinking Fran France has Holocaust now, Germany, Austria, et cetera. But but if it could be shown to with, you know, survey data, empirical evidence, et cetera, and we went around and uh, um, could demonstrate that those countries that had Holocaust denial laws, mm. you let's see, you would have to have um, more. You'd have more people denying the Holocaust. That would be an, a data point. Right. And yeah. if you accept that data point, then we could extrapolate outward from that and say that there could easily be other instances in which um, denial of certain ideas or the promulgation of those ideas would lead to fewer people believing them. And if the that's question, the case, then we could argue that it's a net good. If you ask the question, why is it that Holocaust denial is so marginal a view? And the reason for that is because those that who have attempted to promulgate those ideas have been proven wrong again and again through the exchange of ideas. So I, rather than say, let's envisage a scenario where Holocaust denial is mainstream, let's tackle the reality of the situation as it stands. And the reality is that it is not mainstream. And the reason it's not mainstream is that it's been disproven. Being clearly wrong about history, uh, I don't think should be a criminal offence. OK, let, let me let me try. Let, let, let's again bracket that, <clears throat> move it to the side. Let me try something else. Um, okay. One of the operating assumptions in this conversation is that this is good for individuals. Mm. But what if the individual is not your goal? What if the collective is your goal? What if you have a kind right. of a one party state like China and whatever you think about the Communist Party, one thing is clear. They're making decisions that they think are in the best interest of the people. Absolutely. Right. So let's say you had a situation like that in which I want to move from the underlying assumption in the conversation that the individual um, voice is important and cognitive liberty and beliefs of those individuals to the collective, to the society as a whole. And so it would move the whole society. It would improve the lives of everybody in the society. And again, I think that there could be some, some, I'm not saying I personally believe these, but I think that one could make the argument, for example, that 
what the Chinese have done in with the uh, uh, coronavirus pandemic, how they've limited certain narratives has um, yielded in aggregate in utilitarian uh, lens. Uh, most pe- more people are better off than not. Now that I will yield the, I, <clears throat> the fact that individuals within that system who have their voices squelched have not been better off, but in aggregate, the whole society is better off. So hasn't your assumption in this conversation and this debate, if you will, been um, been more focused on the individual and and less focused on on group cohesion or uh, group benefit? Yes, because I'm not a collectivist. And the reason why this is a spurious approach is because at the heart of the defense of free speech is a belief in the primacy of the individual. It has to be there because really what you're asking me is, well, wouldn't you support some restrictions on free speech if you were a totalitarian? And yes, I would. So, you know, but I can't do that because I don't have that in me. I don't believe in that. So you you, you can't just say that you can't say you're focusing too much on the primacy of the individual in your defense of free speech. The primacy of the individual is the defense of free speech. Right. And my my question to you was um, was on the back of what I asked before. Why should that why is that your starting value when I mentioned, you know, uh, Faisal's Faisal's argument? Like, why should that assumption of the primacy of the individual be? It's again, it seems like you're bootstrapping your own argument. You want to make the argument that free speech is good and we need it and, and it benefits individuals. But what if that's the wrong lens to look through the problem? Well, what if the, the right lens is, let me give you some lenses. What if the right lens is the remediation of historical oppression or the right lens is the aggregate good for the general populace or the right lens? There's some other lens. Why should, why should we start with your, why is your starting assumption the best assumption? I don't think it's an assumption. I think it's, it's, I mean, you're asking me, to, to explain why I'm not an authoritarian, really. <laughs> That's what it sounds like to me. Or, or, or why is it that you think that the individual liberty is more important than collective well-being? Well, I suppose it is quite circular because then I will start talking about how, because I believe in equality, because I believe in the sanctity of human life, because I believe everyone should have equal rights in this world. And yes, that is... Well, well here's, here's, the, here's the rub to the whole thing. If those beliefs are not rationally derivable, then all of your argument falls. But it is it, rational. it, it is completely rationally derivable. I mean, I, okay. I, can think of, I can think of nothing more rational than the notion that to occupy this planet with our fellow human creatures, we should extend to each other the same courtesy that they extend to us or that we expect to receive from them, which is that we are able to live in freedom and peace and to not have our liberties uh, attacked by others. I mean, this this strikes me as how you. This is in, in, eminently reasonable, isn't it? It's how it's how a society flourishes and functions. If we don't have that, what we have in its place is anarchy, is a free for all, is everyone for themselves. Sure we have the true. wild I mean, west. We have your sure country. Well, that might be true, but I'm not. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure that's true in some cases. And again, I'm thinking of of China. There really is something. So, so we're we're both in agreement that if the belief is not rationally derivable, then it's arbitrary. It's subject to like historical capriciousness or yeah. But I'm I'm. But this is this is a. This is a trans-historical and cross-cultural point of view from an individual's perspective. Like you can say, maybe uh, the Chinese regime produces some good uh, overall to the society, 
But if you're going to, why don't you ask the people who are persecuted within that society? You won't find one among them who says, yeah, I think it's worth my suffering for the uh, for the greater good of the of the yeah, nation. But if you ask the, the, the people who have benefited, they'll say yes. Quite. That's my I that's guess, my I point. Guess- I want to run with a with a I want to throw you a little curveball. I want to run with something. Yeah, by all means. So let's say that let's say that we both agree that if it's not rationally drivable, the universe is morally it's just it's arbitrary. I'm still struggling with this, though, because I I fail to see how what I have said is not is, is not based on reason. I think it's firmly grounded in reason. Okay, well, two things. One, couldn't the argument be reasonably made that the individual individuals in the kind of the long tail of history, if you will, individuals, individual rights need to be squelched for the greater good. That's the authoritarian argument. That's the that's the well, I was going to think thinking that was the collectivist argument that, that think, you'd have to put. But wait, that, that you'd have to use authoritarian means to support the collective argument. Well, that is that is not the, an authoritarian the, argument in and of itself. That is the argument of those who promote equity. That is effectively the argument. Is, and that's, I, well, that's why I'm promoting it. That's why yeah. I'm arguing. For well, that, it. Right. That, that's the argument. They're saying that we need to um, uh, impose certain injustices in order to redress, uh, redress past injustices. In other words, right. they're not promoting equality at all. That's why we talk about the critical social justice movement as being a mild form of authoritarianism, because it borrows from the same ideas. Right. And I'm not, I'm not, we're in agreement, but my argument to you is, if authoritarianism yields a greater good for the general populace, but isn't that itself reason to squelch free speech? But it doesn't. It, it, it yields a greater good for those who seize power and maintain power. That's why it's totalitarian. It's, it's, it, it's not the case. I mean, if you if you if you implement certain restrictions on sections of the population in order to elevate um, the others, then you have a situation where people are, well, to use the word, oppressed. You are dividing society in, into oppressed and oppressor. And therefore you have a situation where, I, I mean, that, that to me, I mean, you could, I suppose you could say that is rationally derived because it is self, it's pure self-interest. But okay, it's so, not something I will ever subscribe uh, to because I would, I would prefer to live in a society where everyone has equal rights. But the only reason that you believe that is because you have a kind of social and economic stability. Like if, if the, the, the people in Whoa. China, for example, if there was a kind of a glasnost you know, um, Russian from, from an, an openness, you know, and, and um, we now see the opposite in China. Wouldn't, wouldn't that, I be more likely to support my point of view if I didn't have social and economic stability? I mean, wouldn't I, if I were one of the downtrodden, wouldn't wouldn't the defense of free speech and and, and liberal values actually uh, be the thing that I would be promoting the most? I mean, we know, don't we, across the world that wherever free speech protections are meager, that's where minority groups and the disenfranchised have the worst time of it. There's, it's no accident that that correlation exists. And the, the argument I'm making is not one to uh, uh, um, support the already powerful. It's the opposite. It's, 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 so I don't, I don't understand your point that if I were... Okay. So, so if, 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 countries, if countries who are currently functioning well had a kind of glasnost throughout them, <clears throat> and that led to exactly what led to the breakup of the Soviet Union and... Um, economic collapse, et cetera. Would you yield the point that then that openness, particularly in regard to speech, was a negative? You would have to know where exactly it's going to lead. You would have to have that kind of foresight, which is absolutely impossible. You know, I mean, it comes back to your earlier question about uh, the, the theoretical question is if you could 
predetermined that the outcome of a limitation on free speech would be a net positive for society as a whole. But I just don't accept that that would happen. I mean, I think that's sort of, it's so far into the realm of fantasy. There's no evidence that that could happen. I can't think of a sing single example in history where that has in fact been the case. So, so let me, let me, let me throw you a, a curveball. something I was thinking about when you were, you were talking. Mm. Um, so if we want to make the claim, and this is a totally weird idea. Okay. I thought about this while David Deutsch talks about this in one of his books, but so if we want to make the claim that there are certain moral principles that are universal and yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to put words in your mouth and you're making the claim that, um, free speech is universal. It's rationally drivable. We can yep. do the Descartes thing. You know, we sit in front of the fire and come up. And, and, and not only that, it's the seedbed of all other freedoms. Let me, let me rephrase it. If there were life existing on other planets okay. and they had some kind of a communication mechanism linguistically similar to, to our own vaguely, do you think that that principle would have to operate there in order for them to flourish? Yes. Okay. And do you think if that principle was not operative, they would not flourish? And by flourish, I mean technologically flourish, like become spacefaring or, um, I don't Abs know. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I can't, you know, we look at uh, history, the history of scientific innovation, artistic innovation, any form of innovation has come about through free expression. And often it's come about through people saying very, very unpopular things. I mean, you take the example of, of Galileo is an obvious one, but it's an important one. When he was uh, subscribing to the, uh, the Copernican theory, he was causing a lot of offence. He was being offensive. He was upsetting a lot of people with his speech. This is why the Inquisition had him under house arrest. Right. So he, but, but, but that's how innovation, innovation sometimes comes with uh, risk taking. Um, but then we reach a consensus ultimately on what is true. And we do that through the open discussion of these ideas. Now, I can't think of a single example of when, of when the stifling of speech has led to anything innovative. Can you think of any example throughout history where stifling of speech has enabled innovation or indeed stifling of speech has enabled a more productive or cohesive society? Just any. <laughs> um. <laughs> I'm in trouble. Uh, no, no. I, I, uh, you're a fool. I'm declaring myself the victor in this debate. Fine, fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. Uh, I'm trying. I'm trying to think. Um, any example that I could possibly think of, it would be it would be short term. And um, yeah. And the thing is, you you would have to know. Like, I don't know the end point in China. I don't know the end point of I don't know the end point of Iran or North Korea or I know things aren't aren't good there now, but that could be from other geopolitical factors like trading partners. But I don't. The only argument I think one can sincerely make is that in the short term, it has some yield. But yes, you, you can probably you can probably bring that down to like an individual basis. You could probably say, for instance, uh, so in this uh, situation, the fact that he wasn't allowed to say this and upset that person created a better environment. You can do that. Like, I can see that. But in the but long the term, problem, the problem then with the whole question is that 
And I don't even know if it's a problem with the question, but then the question just becomes empirical. Mm. The question just becomes, you have to look. I think it's important yeah. that because, because so much of what you framed at the moment has been about uh, speculating about what could be some kind of far off uh, utopia that you're imagining or envisaging that I'm saying is actually isn't possible. And what I'm saying is if there are no historical precedents for it, it's probably not possible. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And again, the only thing I can think of right now, uh, the only regimes that have this, they're not faring too well, though China is the exception to that. They're faring very well and they have reduced restrictions. As we, they have different types of political correctness. But, but, like but the again, the human rights abuses, the, the, you know, it, the, the, if you ask the, uh, the Uyghurs how they're faring or how they feel about it, you know, the, the, it's, it's some, the richer elements of society, the powerful are faring well. Because that's how tyrannies work. Um, yeah. I, so I'm trying to think to really make the argument on my side work, it would seem you'd have to adopt, which I tried to do in this, it didn't work for me, but you'd have to ad adopt a kind of postmodernism and relativism. You'd have think, to say that. No, I think you'd have to, I think you'd have to come down on the side of tyranny on the a kind of extreme utilitarianism, this idea of the greatest good for the greatest number. You'd have to come down on that. You'd have to say that the, the persecution and the enactment of human rights abuses for a minority, if it benefits the majority, that is a good thing. And you'd have, and, and that would be, yeah, and that, that's you'd how all you'd have to defend. Yeah, I think. Yeah, you'd also I'm, have to say that the, that the, that the consequence of not doing so is so historically situated, like China, again, that's the only thing I could think of, or maybe Albania 15 years ago, that the consequence of that is so historically situated that it's not a universal. It's a, yeah, it works in some circumstances. And then you'd use that argument to sow doubt in the fact that you know the circumstance you're in. Yeah. Right. You have to say, well, we don't really know if it's working out long term. We know it's currently working out for these people. So but that's not really a good argument even this, then. This is fascinating yeah. to me, though, because this is what I this is why I always want to be able to debate people about free speech, because ultimately where I think their argument will take them is a defense of authoritarianism. And I also think that that's not an argument that anyone wants to make. Right. So I think that yeah. I, I think the, the risk that the, they will risk basically undermining their own point of view. But that, but I want I want to see someone d make that case uh, uh, sincerely. Yeah. And again, I'm thinking I'm also thinking about the fact that you really, really would need to be like an actual relativist. Like you really would need to be uh, uh, at the very least a moral and cultural relativist and probably an epistemological relativist to a certain extent in order to justify the claim that there's something that you need to restrict speech and other liberties, though they wouldn't use the word liberties, uh, or that you wouldn't use the word rights, in certain places in the world that have unique um, circumstances, historical circumstances, linguistic circumstances, cultural circumstances, and you can't make it a blanket statement that we should have free speech. But in order to do that, you would need you would need to make a rational argument for why that's the case. I mean, you would, I mean, it's a very complicated, I don't know how it could be done actually. I don't, I don't know how it could be done because you'd be assuming the very thing that you were trying to argue against. That's, that's my point. But this is why I've never come across a, a fully persuasive and developed argument against free speech. And I, I yeah. would love- it could it could just be it could be that um, people know 
that they would have to make the argument for authoritarianism, but they don't want to say that they're an authoritarian yes, either to themselves point. or to the others because it doesn't look good or it doesn't, it's not a good look. Or they don't know that, or they think that the authority, but they can't think the authoritarianism is just ten- well, is just well, um, temporary for well, a larger good. But maybe they don't, they, they haven't extrapolated it to that degree. So, I mean, for instance, let's right. take the example of hate speech. Can you make a, ca- a case for the validity of hate speech laws to me now? Can you do that? Um, yeah, I guess the argument would be that it, um, I guess there are many arguments. One, the demoralization of a minority um, and the separation from a democratic process. Two, yep. the targeting of individuals. There's something particularly egregious, like randomly beating up people is one thing. Randomly beating them up because of some immutable characteristic seems uh, considerably worse. It just seems more egregious on, on multiple levels. Um, but I, th- I suppose the reason I mention it is because I think when people support hate speech laws, what they think they're doing is looking out for minorities and protecting minorities. But actually, the end point of the rationalization of that is authoritarianism. That's what I mean. I think it's I don't think it's no. that necessarily people realize that what they are doing is defending authoritarianism and they don't want to because it makes them look unpopular. I think they don't. I, I think I just think it hasn't crossed their mind where that where the, the logical endpoint of that process leads. That's what I'm, I'm saying. Which is more frightening to you that it hasn't crossed their mind or that it has? It would be worse if it had and they were defending it anyway. To be sure. Yeah, to be sure. Aristotle, that's one of the kind of question he asked. He said, is it worse that someone doesn't know that stealing is wrong or knows that it's wrong and steals anyway? There seems to me to be something um, morally repugnant and tragic at the same time about people knowing it's wrong and wanting it anyway. It's like a complete catastrophic yeah. moral failure to reason. And I never know. I, I never like to assume yeah. what people are thinking. And I, I never, but when I see the, the but free, you, but you, you have to, because they won't talk to you. Well, that's what I mean. And also the free speech skeptic arguments, they're often so often about attempting to play word games, for instance, uh, uh, deliberately avoiding clarity uh, as a means to attempt to undermine your, your view, um, trying to, catch you out or in some way i mean it's 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 and that to me is indicative of someone who isn't uh who is interested in concealing their own thought process rather than revealing it and that suggests a kind of mistrust in one's own thought process and if not a mistrust maybe maybe in an an awareness that it's actually uh springs from something quite ugly yeah it's not genuine and it's and it's insincere Mm. and the the fact that people the fact that anybody would really want to hold beliefs or argue like that or i, I don't know it's a weird thing to me i guess i'm now not arguing for, for the position i was supposed to argue for no you're not peter you need to <laughs> <laughs> well i declare myself a victor so there we go yeah, okay so that's the, but that's that's exactly the kind of tactic they'll they'll yeah. do they'll say you know well yeah. i don't debate things that, are, that i consider to be beyond the pale so i say that what you what you are advancing is beyond the pale. so i won't debate you and therefore i win i think that's sort of the, the implication there yeah there, there is embedded in that a kind of a kind of i, I don't want to say it's, it's not just it's not merely a tragedy but it's a i, I don't i really all right i'll just say what i'm thinking Go on. Uh, it's not politic but it's a kind of pity like i pity those people like could you imagine like being beholden to you know 
putting pronouns in your bio and wanting to signal to everybody that you're a good person. And I mean, it just seems like a, um, a complete lack of moral and, and personal integrity. Is it, but, is but, it, but it's, so, but that it's masquerading. That's the other problem with it. It's masquerading as if it were the highest form of moral integrity. But is it, so, even, but if, is if, it even related to integrity? I mean, isn't it more a question of a kind of, of the fact that most people will take the easiest route when it comes to thinking things through. If someone, if there's some benevolent entity, an activist say, or a politician who says, if you put pronouns in your bio, that makes you a good person and everyone knows you're a good person and you're trying to, you're making the world a better place. Rather than say, okay, should I challenge that? Should I think about that? Should I decide whether what I'm being told is true? Most people, because it's it's easier to just go along with it. So rather than it being a, 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 a sign of a lack of moral integrity, Maybe it's just uh, a, a sad truth uh, about the way the human mind works. Is that we we uh, what was it uh, the, um, the cognitive miser model? I think it's called. Where, where mm. we will we will automatically take the easy the, whatever's easier to rationalise and more immediate. And I think thinking is hard. Thinking things through is hard, and, and challenging what you've been taught is hard. I mean, that's why it's hard to be a free thinker. And I th- isn't so. Let me just boil it down to this: Isn't it yeah. not so much malevolence? Or something sinister like that. Isn't it just that most people are not in- instinctively free thinkers? There, there's something disturbing to me, and I'll answer your question in a second. Mm. Um, Aristotle talks, writes about the people have the the um, everyone wisdom begins with one. People have the desire to know. Yeah, but there's something about being comfortable with beliefs you hold when everybody else holds them. You should be, yes. Kierkegaard writes about that, you know, everyone's a Lutheran, unless no one's a Lutheran. I mean, th- th- there should be something disconcerting to you or to anybody who holds beliefs that the vast majority of pe- people hold, yeah. particularly, particularly if those beliefs only arose within the last five years. Right? Well, absolutely. It actually it, disturbs me. I don't like feeling that I'm in the preponderance. I don't, I don't enjoy that, that feeling that I, I mean, it makes me mistrust it. It makes me rethink it. That's why I think that the the root of this, and I tried to get to it, I don't know how successful I, I was, but I think the root of this is, and I do think this is one of the reasons that, that these folks won't debate. There are many reasons, but one of them is, if your beliefs are rationally derivable, and you, and the way that you articulate those beliefs is through language, which it is, yeah. you, know, you don't just go, no, exactly. then, <laughs> then the, the natural outgrowth of that is that you would express those to people and find alternative beliefs, contradictory beliefs, and you would engage them. Yeah. Here's the rub. If you don't believe your beliefs are rationally derivable, if you don't think that you can derive them so that an ind- what I mean by that is an independent person with no quote unquote dog in the fight yeah. can reason to these beliefs on the basis of you know, empirical evidence, the best arguments, et cetera. If you don't believe that, it it seems like you would not want to have a conversation. And that's the interesting thing about postmodernism now is that this kind of um, narratives, there's no you know truth or facts about the world. You know things because of your position, your power relation in the world and your position in the world. You know, yeah. Foucault had one word, power knowledge. And so it seems that not wanting a discourse or a dialogue is a natural outgrowth, not only of the postmodern condition, yeah. 
borrowing from the title of the book, but from the idea that those practices that you have aren't rationally drivable. And I think that's something that's overlooked in these conversations. Like, can we get, you know, Charles Sanders first calls it a community of ideal inquirers. Like, can we get, you know, Rawlsian, all these different conceptions of justice and how we figure things out. But I just gave you a very highbrow look at it. I think that the lowbrow look at it, a a buddy of mine said, you know, I I was asking him, a few years ago, you know, why aren't there any protests against um, on on college campuses? The literal slave rings by ISIS. They, they've taken Yazidi women and they're literally raping and torturing them. And why aren't there? No? And he said to me, you, you, and I just thought this was so interesting, is because if you don't have a global perspective on things, it just doesn't occur to you. And it might not also not occur to people you know, we're so hyper race conscious, et cetera, that there are, uh, there are embedded within that conceptions of relativism. These folks have dark skin, et cetera. But what you and I, not me right now that is arguing on the other side, but what I actually believe, what you believe is that there are shared conceptions of justice mm-hmm. and that those moral conceptions of justice, and I would put those under uh, liberalism, those conceptions of justice are open to all. Did they uh, evolve largely in the West? Yeah, but they have nothing to do with the West. Anybody can participate in these systems and they're rationally drivable and we can figure out how to live better lives. And that's not bootstrapping off like I tried to catch you at. That's not bootstrapping off of ideas. Um, it, it's not a kind of circularity. It's, yeah. it's that anybody can participate in the system and live better lives for themselves and their communities. Yes. But integral to that is in order to participate, it's like the bowling alone thing. You know, people like to people like communities in which there are high rates of civic participation in those communities. And they come from communities in which there are low rates of civil, civic participation to yield those benefits. But the problem is once they get to those communities, they themselves don't participate in the mm. communities. And then it becomes a cesspool again. Like it goes down the, but, but the, that's the, the analogous to why we would want um, why a bedrock of this whole thing has to be, hence my book, how to have impossible conversations. Like we have to start talking. We have to start, dis- you know, healthy, productive, civil disagreements. And if we're wrong, we have to change our mind. Right. Any that- other alternative is tyranny. Any other alternative is trapping yourself in a way of viewing the world that you'll, you may think is true, but you never deep down really know that it's right. But that's the, that is, I mean, you've hit it really. The problem is a matter of truth. And that's why, and although I really applaud what you're attempting to do in that book, um, and, and, you know, I subscribe to it. You know, I think it's re- the, the problem is that people aren't talking to each other enough. And at the heart of postmodernism is this complete disregard for the notion of truth. And, that you know, they talk about multiple ways of knowing or my truth or lived experience. Yeah. And this, re- you know, I, and you I'll throw it. You can't have yeah. a conversation with if one in- interlocutor, I forgot the word, right, uh, doesn't want to. Uh, doesn't believe in the notion of truth. They only believe in their own truth. If you right. can't, uh, if if people won't. Um, reject premises once they have been proven to be false you know if they if they have this belief that's why yeah that's why i said pity it's a kind of trap it's even worse than tragedy so where people lock themselves in a view of the world i'll throw another curveball at you my my my, my dear friend and jujitsu coach matt thornton said to me something really interesting um he's a conor mcgregor's coach's coach he said that 
people who participate in fantasy martial arts for long periods of time, um, one of the things that you see happen is you see increased rituals, you know, all the bowing and all this, you know, silliness and the katas and all this stuff. And over time, they become And the reason they become is because they know it doesn't work because they know somebody with even, you know, three or four months of jujitsu would just going to beat the out of them. And so there's something analogous or similar in the process of holding on to a belief system without truly scrutinizing the belief and assigning very high confidence levels. You have to do something to make up the difference between the, the fact that the belief is just not, it's not capable of withstanding scrutiny. Yeah. But, but you pro- told yourself a story that it makes you a better person to hold the belief. But that's the problem that we're facing at the moment. This is why I'm asking you about what do we do about this? I mean, because we talk about how the solution to our problems or to reach better ideas is through debate and discussion. But you have right. one side of this argument who reject that notion. What they, what they, what they have is this odd combination of, as you say, uh, a conviction that their perspective is the truth, this kind of Correct. very conviction that doesn't depend upon uh, reason. It doesn't have have anything to do with reason or facts or anything. It's just they lived know experience. It's, it's, not it even is, lived, it's not even lived. It's not even actually even. lived experience. It's, no. Yeah. It's combined with this incredible and chilling certainty. Um, and maybe that inflated confidence with which um, their lived experience or truths are expressed. It comes about precisely because uh, they are built on sand. In other words, um, right. it's, a, it's exactly. almost like it acts like a shield um, to, right. to prevent the scrutiny that would have your own views fall apart. I mean, I give the example of whenever I'm in a debate with someone online about JK Rowling and they talk about all the transphobic things she said, and I ask them to quote one of the transphobic things she said, and they never can. They never can. And the reason they can't is she hasn't done it. So right. at that point, no, we live in we live in a world where you know we have share the belief that in those situations, if if I'm making a claim and someone asks me to prove my claim and I cannot do it, then I would say I must be wrong. Let me go away, think about it, revise that, uh, and revise my position. And that's that's what we all should be doing clearly but the problem is we're now dealing with people who won't do that they will in fact double down on their original error um and they will state it with twice as much certainty as they did before and the and the um the uh that um stance that they take of of utter utter conviction is 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 their way of of preventing the collapse of their own belief system. So it, it's circular. Okay. It gets worse Correct. and worse and worse. And, the, and, and what I'm asking you is, you wrote this book about having impossible conversations, but is it really possible anymore? Is it, is it, is it actually, po- I mean, you can do that in some cases and the, the case of Daryl Davis proves it, but for so many who are uh, just completely immersed in the critical social justice movement, that I think it's almost like the ship has sailed that you can't. No, no, no. You, you've you've got to have more hope. I have. I have. Again, the example of Daryl Davis is perfect, and I've never given up hope on on anyone. Um, you, but the problem is that you have infrastructures in the university system now that don't have debates, that don't allow spirited conversations, that don't right. allow. A, a buddy of mine was was texting me the other day about um, leaving. He's a philosophy professor. And I said, well, why don't you try this as an experiment? Why don't you just say, okay, um, I'm interested in 
I want to hear the best of best arguments on both sides for why trans uh, women or men, whatever, trans bathrooms. You try that. You see what happens. Yeah. It's like, no way. I'm not going to try. Okay. Well, there you go. Right. So, but we have modeled for us in the university system, the exact opposite of what we have in my resignation letter. I showed the, you know, the tenured faculty member screaming at, at us from the audience, thinking that it's okay to dis- disrupt. And then, um, saying it's a form of disruption uh, based in Judith Butler's thinking. So yeah. it's there's a there's an in, there's a, a um, scholastic infrastructure in which people base these these ideas. So yes, it is. I will fully admit to you, it is incredibly difficult when our young people are being taught that they shouldn't have conversations with certain people. They're not showing it modeled. They're um, you know, and Lukianoff has written about this extensively. The mental health crises are worse and things are being exacerbated. But there is we know what the solution is. This ideology will burn itself out sooner or later. It's simply not sustainable. Nobody wants to live like this. The, 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 the solution question is, the yeah, solution go ahead. Is, is, is education it is, you know, I mean, I think the best thing that anyone can do is attempt to articulate their opponent's point of view. Correct. And, and, and that's a piece of advice you give in your book on impossible conversations, actually, is you make right. the, the, that what you should do in an argument is say, OK, if I've understood you correctly, this is your perspective. This is your point of view. I promise you that if everyone did that, 99 percent of arguments would, would, would fall apart because people would realize they're not arguing with each other. They're arguing with some caricature on the horizon that doesn't bear any relation uh, to what the person actually thinks, you know? Yeah, that's Rappaport's rule. So, uh, so look, the, the bottom line in this whole thing is um, we need to start talking to each other again. Yeah, I don't think that you and I had to do this. We were kind of, we, we chose, we didn't have to do it, but we chose to do it because nobody would have that conversation with us. I've been trying to have conversations. Look, the, my resignation letter was picked up by the whole, I mean, every Poland multiple Germanys, Italy, Russia, all, all, all over the place. I have asked repeatedly to be on MSNBC, CNN, to have, I don't even have to be on, to have a conversation with, with Rachel Maddow, with OPB, which is Oregon Public Broadcasting, with mm-hmm. the Oregonian. I mean, these are, the, this, the, we have to have the conversation. You know, for example, the, the president of PSU said the, his highest priority is racial justice. Portland State University's highest priority. I would like to have a conversation about that. Immediately, you'll be hit with what about is. Well, what yeah. about the lunatics who invaded the Capitol with the with the horns, the the, the, the Q sham? Okay, well, what about them? Yeah. Like, you, you know, like you, you can't say Helen Pluckrose is a great thing for this. She says that if if you say, listen, that I have an infestation of cockroaches in my basement, this is a huge problem. Someone else will say to you, yeah, but what about your neighbors? They have rats. They have a rat infestation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They have a rat infestation, but I'm not talking about the rat infestation. I'm talking about the infestation of cockroaches in my basement. So, so there's this idea that there has to be a kind of parallelism. Like you can't criticize something on this side unless you criticize something on the other side. But it's only, it's only, it's only going to get worse because I mean, you, you, your experience proves it insofar as, People have started to suggest that the defense of free speech and intellectual inquiry is a right wing talking point. And then when you no. uh, when your when your resignation letter goes viral across the world, which does sort of verify that lots of people are concerned about this, clearly, um, then right wing stations or uh, stations that are perceived to be right leaning invite you to talk. The defeating left- frenzy. Everybody constantly. Everybody. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm still getting the emails from the, the, Fox le- the left. The left wing stations won't. 
And therefore, that, 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 gen that sort of regenerates and perpetuates the illusion that this is only a concern with people on the right. Actually, it's yeah. a, a lot of people and, on the left. Yeah. And you know what the other thing it does is it makes it easy to say, oh, look, there's Bogosian. He only talks to people on the right. Well, yeah, can, nobody will talk to me on the left. Yeah. And I'm yeah. even giving them the question. It's not like this gotcha. I mean, yeah. Here's the question. You want to, should the should racial justice be the highest priority of a public institution of a university? Yeah. There's the question. And I'm waiting. So I'm actually not waiting anymore. I've given up. But but, you know, because I, I, I want to start. I just started yesterday on my children's book again. There's only so much time I can. I can yeah, yeah. You, you mustn't exhaust but, yourself with this stuff. But on the other hand, I think you're right is that both you and I agree that the, the need to have more conversations is important. But but like I say, one side of this argument just won't do it. <laughs> you know, so so I don't yeah, know how we get, get yeah, past it. And the Gorgias, Plato says that or Socrates says that it's uh, it's better to be refuted than it is to refute. Because if you're refuted, then you can come closer to the truth. You can, you know, because we all want to have more true beliefs and fewer false beliefs. But we have a, a problem in this culture war that comes down to that not people don't think it's better to be refuted because they don't buy the very idea of refutation because they don't because argument isn't the tool that gets them to truth or falsity. It's subjective experience. And when you make that subjective turn, you've turned your back on reliable ways of knowing, epistemologies, things that we can use to come to knowledge. And not only that, your identity is tied to your tribe. And it's, it's not about reaching truth, it's about your tribe winning. And so therefore, therefore, there's too much at stake for you to lose. And that's, that's something else we need to sever. And it is about reinstating in the, at the lowest levels of education at primary school, <laughs> you know, reinstating the importance of uh, discussion Diversity of opinion, different perspectives, rationalization, the Socratic uh, method. But I have good news for you. Go on. There are universities popping up, new institutions like the University of Austin. It's not out yet, but it, people will know about it soon enough. Uh, there are institutions that are forming around these bedrock principles of free speech and open expression and the Socratic method and uh, defeasibility or disconfirmation, mm. um, th things that tools that we've used for you know a long, long time and yeah. tools that we know that we can rely upon to help us all live better lives. So there is hope. That's great to hear. That's really great to hear because that's that's because otherwise I'm, I'm edging into the cave of despair to take a Spencerian right. image. I, I, you know, I kind of think it's, it's self-perpetuating and it's, it, it, it's getting worse. But if, if it can change at the root, if it can change with, in the educational system. And that's why I get well, particularly yeah. upset whenever I see um, people attempting to smuggle the ideology into school. That's why I get particularly bothered about that, because that will make our task just a hundred right. times harder. Yeah, well, so it's I've given up. I don't I believe as uh, uh, he's not your fellow countryman because he's. Uh, Scottish, but that's why I believe that, you know, Neil Ferguson is correct. The universities are doomed. I have just, I've, that's it. They're done. But we are building new institutions. Ralston College is another one. People yeah. are building new institutions. People are building new. And, you know, that's the other thing. Public trust in our institutions is, it's, that's the legitimacy crisis. It was a crisis of legitimacy. Public trust in the school systems, public trust in virtually everything in the United States is, it's it's execrable. And the question is, if we we know the solution, but that's the good news. The good news to this, the silver lining is we know exactly what to do. We know yeah. the solution. And and if you want a one, a single sentence takeaway, not from the debate, but for what a solution is, let friends be wrong. 
Mm. That's in our book. It's completely okay if you and I have a disagreement about something, maybe even something substantive. Or could there be a, a deal breaker for our friendship? Like you believe something that I just, I just can't countenance. Yeah, I mean, sure, of course there is. But I think we have to start with that principle of letting friends be wrong because we're so into the morass of cultural sickness right now that I don't think we're ready to have an honest conversation about having conversations. I mean, if we did, for example, we would have BLM together. I suggested this to somebody and they thought that was the most insane idea they ever heard. We'll have someone from BLM and someone from police tactics and we'll put them in a room and we'll have that conversation. People said we can't do that. Be a riot. We're not even ready for those conversations. No, this is, this is something I've tried to do on my show. I want to get a, a trans rights activist and a uh, gender critical feminist sat together and have the conversation because at the moment just everyone is talking at cross purposes. It's pointless. Yeah. And, and implicit in that, I will say that both you and I have a commitment to trans rights. Yeah. I'm completely committed to, 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 to gay rights, trans minority. I mean, it's just, but yet that's the tool that people use while well, you hate trans people or yeah. you hate gay people or you hate women. Really, I but hate again, women. But again, like, this is why. Really, that's what you got. That's the argument you got that I hate women. That's why, if 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 they could be encouraged to sit down and articulate our perspective back at us, and once they got through all the the mire of oh, well, you must hate women, you must hate gay people, you must hate trans people, and they realise that's not what we think, if they could honestly uh, and faithfully replicate our argument back to us, I think they would change. I think they would they would yeah, see that this is. Yeah, I would like to see somebody who does not who is against free speech, someone who is, you know, for censorship or what have you. I would like to see them two people who are known in the public space do exactly what we have done and do it twice. Yeah. Yeah. Thoroughly. Yeah. Clearly, you gave me a thorough trouncing the second time. <laughs> but um, the, I, I would it's an like easy thing to defend, though, Peter. It's, it isn't easy. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I, I did my best, but it didn't, I don't think it worked out for me too well. No, so I, think I changed well, my mind if I would hold the belief. Yeah. But isn't, isn't it, it's a fascinating exercise though, isn't it? Just to do it. Just, just. Yeah, to and it's important. Views. And it's important to, you know, when I do impossible conversations with people, I put up the bad videos too. So I don't just put up the good videos yeah. and then I get a lot of Oh, why'd you put up that? Well, because I want people to learn. I want people to see it. I want people to know the mistakes I made so they don't make them. And well, so we have this kind of tenacious clinging to, I don't know if it's our egos or what have you. Yeah, or the, I, I think we, ego is a lot of it. I think if we, if, if, if everyone could just shed their ego and it's not easy because we all have a sizable ego, we're human beings. Yeah. But if we can just say, it's okay. If I go on and talk to this person and maybe they make me look like I don't know what I'm talking about, but that's good for me because then I'm wrong. And then, you know, exactly. That's Plato's Gorgias again. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So maybe, maybe we'll get there. Listen, Peter, I think this has been really worthwhile and I'm glad we did it again. Thank you. Thank I think you. it was sorry. I wasn't a better uh, opponent for you there. No, you were, you were, you won. You said, you, you said you I, won. true. I did say that I won, didn't I? <laughs> and it's your lived experience. Your lived experience is your victory. It's true. My, in my lived experience, I thought I didn't just win. It was a beating. It was a, hor a horrible humiliation that I will never live down. Yeah, Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Andrew. This has been the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and the writer and philosopher, Peter Bogosian. If you enjoyed the show, please do like and subscribe, tell people about it, and join us again next week when we're going to have another fantastic guest. Farewell.